0: This is the Seminole War's Authority. Hello and welcome to our sixth installment in Martial Matters of the Second Seminole War. Decisive Battle Fallacies. In the Second Seminole War, army commanders had an expectation that if they could just draw the Seminole into one decisive battle, they could settle the issue of removal in their favor right then and there. The Seminole, however, had other ideas and greatly frustrated army leaders in this endeavor. Considering this, what was it in the U.S. Army's past that gave these leaders the idea that they had the capability for waging and winning one decisive battle to end a war? Who better to help us understand than autodidact, living historian, reenactor, and all-around great guy, Jesse Marshall. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Glad to join you. Jesse, tell us, what was it about Indian fighting that gave the army such confidence that they could get one decisive battle with Indians and settle the matter?
1: If we go back, you will see that from after the American Revolution through the 1830s, all of the Indian wars that were most notable, anyway, were concluded by a decisive battle. Most recently at Bad Axe in 1832, the Salk and Fox had traversed a great deal of territory in their movements. And when the uh, federal forces, including militia and volunteers and regular troops under Zachary Taylor, defeated Black Hawk people at the Battle of Bad Axe, which is a very bloody engagement. And many, many non-combatant Indians were killed as usually was the case in these fights. It ended the war. If you go back to Horseshoe Bend in 1814, General Jackson's great victory against the Red Sticks, again, significant battle, and the result was brutal in the extreme. Hundreds of Creek women and children, etc., caught in the middle of the action. Casualties on the American side, relatively high, but not shockingly so. In fact, many of the veterans of Horseshoe Bend deplored the bloodshed, so far as they comment. But the significant point to the United States was that it ended the Creek War, and you have fallen timber timbers, Tippecanoe.
0: Was it also part of the Army ethos to seek out decisive battles where possible?
1: Military officers, an ultimate expression of their professional status was their capability to command men in battle, and particularly to achieve victory
0: in battle. One of the reasons, perhaps, why we focus on decisive battles is because the actual battles that weren't decisive often were little more than unsatisfying skirmishes. Unsatisfying for the army, that is. There was one Creek countryman.
1: He wrote a history of the Creek Indians.
0: Right. That would be Thomas Woodward's Reminiscences of the Creek or Muskogee Indians.
1: He had lived in the Creek country since before the War of 1812. If he lived at the Indian Agency. He would have met a lot of people. This gentleman comments on the First Seminole War, claiming that he was a participant in it, and he's describing the attack on Town and some of the skirmishes. He was quite convinced that the majority of the Indian battles of the Southeast were a little different than the fights he was in, which was essentially nothing to really write home about outside of the danger of the circumstance. That in the end, these Indian skirmishes come written up as battles when there really is very little battle about them. And frequently the Indians are not even seen most of the time It's just a lot of gunfire stop shooting and disappeared. Then you would claim a victory.
0: One question we can ask in hindsight is, was it even fair to expect a decisive battle? The
1: point that General Clinch was making months and months earlier was that there was a faction among the Seminoles that wished to resist removal. It was not necessarily universal. Mm -hmm. There was certainly a a near-universal distaste for the removal. Mm -hmm. But whether they were going to actually fight or whether they were going to try and hide out was the question. Mm -hmm. If it was a matter of them hiding out and not being interested in fighting, then that would have been to the government's advantage. Because while it would be difficult to catch them, if they're not willing to kill uh, or fight battles, etc., then rounding them up wouldn't be quite as spectacularly painful and bloody as it turned out to be.
0: There is an irony to this, of course. Plinch and other generals wanted to shock and awe the Seminoles into compliance with removal. On the converse, the Seminoles sought to shock and awe of the army, and they did this successfully with the Dade battle and then in the battles that followed. And their stature, as very difficult and hard to capture warriors, only went up in esteem following the encounters with the army. With the early Seminole victories, it didn't matter how many soldiers the army might bring to the field, they were not going to be able to awe the Seminoles. Is that a correct characterization?
1: Gaines' operations on with Likuchi in late February, early March. By the end of March, General Scott was wielding a force of almost 4,000 troops marching through the center of East Florida, and largely, well, there was some small skirmishes and shootouts, his columns failed to achieve anything of significance except burning abandoned villages. Once his army was breaking up in late April, because the three-month term of service of his volunteer forces were up, the Seminoles struck then, uh, with about 300 of them attacking one of his weakened, worn-out columns at the known Creek, about 14 miles from Tampa. In a large-scale ambush... Once they had inflicted three or four dead and 20-some wounded, killing a large number of the horses and baggage animals, and for about an hour putting the troops under a close, heavy, and well sustained fire, the Seminoles withdrew back into the swamps
0: and disappeared. Another irony is by seeking the decisive battle, several times in the early days of the campaign, they both united and stiffened Seminole resistance to the removal efforts.
1: Once the Seminole resistance was brought to the fore by the Battle of Camp Izzard and by March of 36, the Seminoles then divided into smaller parties, but by then it was evident that the larger number of them were willing to fight and didn't see any disadvantage in it. The, the disadvantage they found was in casualties, but they were minimized by their mode of fighting so that the casualties among the troops in such battles were maximum.
0: General Scott was one of the most prominent proponents for the decisive battle. How did he come about that way of thinking?
1: General Scott was considered one of the foremost commanders in the post war of eighteen twelve era based largely on a relatively small battle at Chippewa in July eighteen fourteen where his brigade of US regulars in a stand up fight worsted a brigade of British troops. At Lundy's Lane shortly thereafter, he was critically wounded. The battle was a draw, although the British held the field. I guess technically the victors. But while Lundy's Lane was a more brutal and bloody action and more desperately fought, Scott was considered the victor of Chippewa. Like Jackson was considered the victor of New Orleans against the British. How important was the battle to the U.S. Army? Battles were considered of principal importance. The armies were organized in large measure to fight battles. Even with irregular troops, they had their role in battle as well.
0: Our history books tend to privilege the army's battles against European or European-style militaries over those waged against Indian tribes. If we look back at the army's past, however, we can see that often they had battles against both, sometimes in the same war.
1: I'm reminded of Joseph Doddridge, who grew up in Western Virginia during the American Revolution. And in the 1820s, he commented that the American Revolution was a dual conflict. The public seems to either want to read about the fight against the British, which was a conventional war. But there was greater bloodshed on the frontiers of the American colonies, with American patriots fighting the Indian tribes allied with the British. The Indian wars are often classified as separate, but the patriots during the revolution viewed it as the same war with a different enemy. The War of 1812 was not much different.
0: And the Seminole were part of this equation.
1: There was an observation or two that the Seminoles had allied themselves with the British in both the Revolution and War of 1812, while they had been peaceful with the United States Particularly since 1821, there was a distrust there, perhaps mutual, because a large number of the Seminoles of 1835 had emigrated into Florida. They had been former red sticks that rather than surrender with the Creeks proper in 1814, they had gone into Spanish Florida and become amalgamated with the various bands of
0: Seminole. The name of one of these red stick warriors is most familiar to our listeners, Osceola. But there were other red sticks who were fierce warriors and charismatic leaders who faced the army both before and during the Second Seminole War.
1: Jumper, Odomatla, the sense-bearer of the tribe by 1835, he's credited with being one of the principal leaders in the massacre of American citizens at the attack on Fort Mims in 1813, which kicked off the Red Stick War. Between that and his central command at Dade's Battle in December 1835, another significant victory, Jumper, well, right, should be considered one of the great Indian generals, but he's not well-known at all today.
0: As you noted, Jumper was instrumental in the destruction of Dade's column. Despite that, Army leaders still expected they could bring the Seminole to heel, possibly even in one decisive battle.
1: They certainly hoped that it could be achieved. These commanders, they believed that
0: in a decisive action, they would prevail. Duncan Clinch, the general commanding the regulars in Florida, believed this, although he did have his doubts.
1: We see that Clinch wasn't so certain about it from his letters even prior. He felt that there needed to be an overwhelming regular force brought to bear even before violence took place, and that didn't happen.
0: In traversing the terrain from Fort Drain south to Fort Brook, General Edmund Gaines sought to have a decisive battle with the Seminole.
1: Yes, if they were willing to offer him battle in that manner... But what we saw in the effect was that Gaines reached the Withlacoochee River February 27th and he actually reached the point where Clinch crossed in December uh, 31st previous and he fought a fight across the river and realized that, wow, they're they're not going to allow me to cross. So the Withlacoochee River proved to be a barrier. So Gaines, of course, moved his army a few miles downriver the next day to a more clear area where the banks were not as heavily timbered, where his artillery would have a better command over the crossing. And he was initially planning to cross. They were building rafts. That's when the Seminoles came upon Camp Izard and attacked it for a few days with some heavy attacks and sniping.
0: Even with his artillery overlooking the crossing point, General Gaines decided to keep his troops within the camp, rather than to seek out the Seminoles. Was he giving up on his desire for a big decisive battle?
1: Gaines did recognize by this time that if he defeated the Seminoles, What good would it do? They'd just run into the swamps. So instead of making a sortie, he was sending expresses to Clinch, you know, bring your command and maybe we'll get them in the bag. That didn't work out.
0: General Winfield Scott, fully manned and resourced, had the time to devise a strategy to use against the Seminoles to obtain a decisive battle. But like Clinch and Gaines, he also failed. Why was this?
1: He employed a larger force. No expense was spared. The form three. Columns geographically separated east west side of Florida and north up at Fort Drain. If you read the transcript from Frederick the next year in the Court of Inquiry about the operation, it was no picnic for Scott to try to coordinate the movements of these three wings, as he called them. They're essentially brigades, but he called them wings because his intention was that these three columns would move on the center of Seminole resistance simultaneously, the Cove of the Withlacoochee. By doing so they could not be defeated in detail the way that Clinch's force and Gaines's force had been. And the Seminoles realized that too. And so they just didn't fight Scott's wings. They just got out of the way. They were skirmishing and sniping. There were just short of 30 of Scott's men killed and a few dozen wounded, but no real battle. And Scott recognized that if they won't give battle, then I can't defeat them in the immediate future because U.S. militia in federal service were limited to three-month tours of duty at a time. And as April was draining away, the thousands of volunteers that Scott had brought into the field, they were becoming short timers. They had to be prepared to go back as the government recruited another 4,000 volunteers from the states.
0: Public support for the war had not waned in the few months after Dade's massacre. But there was another factor involved in recruiting additional troops for the Florida War.
1: The problem there was that even among Southerners, there was a general disinclination to serve in Florida.
0: Faced with recruiting shortfalls for the regular army from potential volunteers who feared serving in the often inhospitable and unhealthy Florida climate, two Florida territorial militia generals stepped up to employ their troops in decisive action to end the war, one through decisive battle and the other through duplicity or decisive capture. Who were these generals and how did they fare?
1: they had their enthusiasm to it and they were militia generals and the territorial militia of florida was divided into two brigades the first brigade was west of the suwannee under general call and the second brigade was east of the suwannee under general hernandez and both officers served on actively after the emergency commenced in the fall of 1835 both of them frequently in federal service commanding florida troops Uh, And others. And in late 1836, General Call took active control of all federal forces in Florida and conducted the campaign resulting in the battles in the Wahoo Swamp, in particularly that of November 21st, 1836. And in that action, Carl's entire force was thrown upon the Wahoo Swamp to try and rout out and defeat the larger portion of the Seminoles hidden in the swamp, or recently in the swamp. And there was a significant firefight and several killed, including David Moniac, the Creek Indian West Point graduate. But the fight ended up being desultory. Near nightfall, the pursuit was called off. The Seminoles had already moved their families and most of their baggage out of the swamp, and the fighting had not resulted in large casualties. No Seminoles were captured. General Call's army, in the meantime, had run out of food, so had to withdraw back toward Volusia to feed itself.
0: How was it that General Call got command of the forces?
2: When General Scott left the territory in late spring, the Army, the War Department, etc., Offered command of the Florida forces back to General Clinch, who had been superseded. Clinch declined the offer and retired from the army at that time, and that left General Call of the Florida militia, who had been again a pretty active combatant in the campaign at Withlacoochee. So General Call essentially assumed the command. He was the he'd lived in Florida a long time. He was trusted by President Jackson. He'd been the Brigadier General of the West Florida Militia since the early 1820s. So he was appointed the commander of the U.S. forces in the territory. And being the territorial governor, he was, in a sense, a U.S. officer already because the governor of the territory is appointed by the president. Also, the generals of the Florida Militia were also appointed by Congress. So, in a sense, even though he was a territorial officer, General called essentially held his commission ostensibly through federal authority as a territorial officer. I'm not certain whether he was actually mustered into United States service as a Florida militia general for U.S. service during the period of his command in Florida, or whether he simply acted under his authority as commander-in-chief of the territorial militia and ostensibly under the orders of President Jackson was commanding the U.S. forces that were in the territory as well. So I'm not exactly certain exactly what condition General Call was in during his active period. It would relate to
0: how he was being paid. Ultimately, he gained command in Florida. He got to implement his plan to remove the Seminole. How did that turn out for him?
2: General Call's campaigns in Florida were not a success. He pressed his troops to the maximum. He had a brigade of Tennessee volunteers, and nearly all their horses died of starvation and exhaustion during his campaigns. To the extent that physical effort and physical agony by U.S. soldiers was capable to press the war to its conclusion, General Call did his utmost to achieve that. Having been a veteran of Jackson's campaigns in 1813, 14, 15, he knew he could push men without quartermaster supplies and so forth. But at the end of the day, the Seminole, it was a different enemy with a different terrain. And despite several large skirmishes, notably at Wahu Swamp, the Seminole were no closer to capitulation when Call concluded his operations than prior.
0: How did General Jessup get involved in the war?
2: Subsequently, General Jessup, who had aided materially in the suppression of the Creeks during their emigration was sent to Florida to take the command there. General Jessup happened to be the Quartermaster General of the U.S. Army. One great complaint made of General Call's campaigns was that he did not lay out a very stringent logistical organization for his forces. Again, he just pushed everything forward and the men suffered as a result. General Jessup's operations were different. General Jessup laid got a plan of roads, forts, and depots. In other words, there would always be food within a day or two's march of every column so far as he could work that out. And so for the next two years, after Jessup took command in December 36, January 37, for the next year and a half, really, General you know, Jessup laid this logistical foundation within the territory that allowed his forces to take the field in, in the largest numbers yet in December of 1837. Leading to the bloody action at Okeechobee and also the fight at the significant combat at Loxahatchee in January of 1838. But again, those combats did not lead to a significant capitulation by the Seminole in Florida in general. It led to the, the capitulation of a large number, but not the, didn't end the war. I think it was pretty obvious to all parties that General Call's campaigns had largely failed. The obvious reasoning was because there was not a means of keeping the troops in the field long enough to really achieve significant results. The Seminoles were still numerous enough and engaged in combat in large scale enough that the forces dare not scatter into small units lest they be cut off like Major Dade. And so you had to move in these larger columns. It meant more food and more forage and everything was required. General Based on the forces that he had at hand, that he inherited from the previous campaign, he was unable to do more than push the men to their limit and the animals. And once they reached that limit, the war was still ongoing. So a different tack had to be made. And General Jessup had proven himself in the Creek Campaign and was the U.S. Army's top logistical man. And so when you have a logistical problem, it's handled by logistical means. So General Jessup received the command in Florida. General Call claimed subsequently he was glad to turn over command. <laughs> so when General Jessup arrived in the territory in late 1836, they took a company of U.S. Marines that were put on horseback and some Alabama volunteers. He crossed from Tampa Bay over to the Black Creek, the Army Depot, etc., and there he consulted with General Call and gave him evidently notice that the federal government was giving Jessup command in Florida, and General Call understood this. So in the meantime, you know, Jessup, though, was still getting his feet wet, was touring the territory, getting an idea of what he had to get a handle of. So Jessup, I don't believe Jessup took immediate command at that point. But again, the troops were worn out, so there was no more operations for another several weeks. It took several more weeks to get the troops back out into the field. Under Jessup, after he had laid a, a groundwork for better logistical support for the columns that are moving through the wilderness.
0: Jesse, do you see this as a punitive action against General Call or just the feds retaking command?
2: You don't see the suggestion that Call had done anything wrong or that his failure had proceeded from any failure on his part to do his whole duty, if perhaps even more so than his duty, if, if you see what I mean? The war just chewed up American generals. Even General Scott in his own memoir notes that uh, he was a little bit piqued at General Jessup because Jessup had wrote a letter after the Creek Campaign in the summer of 36. Jessup had written that General Scott was too slow for Indian warfare, something to that effect. Obviously, the administration's answer was, well, if you're the man for the job, then have at it. General Scott was actually... More than a little annoyed at, at that letter that did not go through headquarters channels that evidently went straight to the president. Some regular officers did not like Jessup, evidently, for having done that. Among the officers that did not like Jessup was Captain Joseph Van Swaringen of the 6th Infantry, who was killed at the Battle of Okeechobee. And in some of his last letters to his family, he noted that he didn't like General Jessup really and didn't think much of him as a commander or something to that effect, and swearing ended up being among the foremost to fall at the Battle of Okeechobee during Jessup's principal campaign in which he hoped to bring the Seminoles to a titanic decisive battle and defeat them in the manner of Jackson's
0: victories in 1813 and 14, but that wasn't to be. Call was not the only militia general in the Florida Territory. Tell us about General Hernandez.
2: The General Call, as I mentioned, was the Brigadier General commanding the 1st Brigade of Florida Militia, which was west of the Suwannee, and the 2nd Brigade of Florida Territorial Militia was east of the Suwannee and was called East Florida. And the Brigadier General commanding that brigade since the 1820s was Joseph M. Hernandez, originally a Spanish citizen of Minorcan descent, resident of St. Augustine. He served in the Spanish militia during the War of 1812 against U.S. forces and against the Florida Patriots evidently also during the Seminole War of 1817-18. But in the early 1820s, he did not leave Florida. He chose to remain and became a U.S. citizen and was subsequently appointed a Brigadier General of the Florida Militia, and he retained that commission through the 1830s. During the Second Seminole War, General Hernandez commanded a brigade of Florida Militia and other mounted troops in East Florida during the summer and fall of 1837 and it was, in fact, U.S. soldiers under the command of Hernandez that secured Osceola near Fort Peyton in September of 1837, ostensibly under a white flag. Since General Jessup considered the Seminoles as having proven faithless to their agreement made with him at Fort Dade earlier in the year, he didn't consider it a, an abuse to take the Seminoles under a flag of parole in that manner. But Since it was Jessup's orders, essentially, very little of the political fallout fell upon General Hernandez, who
0: was the actual captor, as it were. So Jessup took full responsibility and didn't scapegoat Hernandez. Jessup spent the remainder of his life and
2: career defending his decisions regarding those captures. To the extent that he was interested in commenting upon it, he claimed that he felt it was the correct one since the Seminole Nation, so far as he was concerned, had made a lawful agreement with him as the U.S. commander in Florida at Fort Dade, and that when that agreement was broken and the war recommenced, it was his contention that there was no lawful reason for him to abide any parley with the Seminole leadership since they had made an agreement and broken it. And in his mind, his view was that they were already bound by the Fort Dade agreement, so He wasn't going to make a new agreement with them. He was going to bind them to Fort Dade, which included a surrender and included their emigration. So you see, in his view, he didn't do anything wrong. I haven't seen, I don't recall, reference to him blaming anyone else relative to these issues. General Hernandez, in Jessup's final reports, he has mostly positive things to say about General Hernandez's operations. And in fact, as the winter of 1837 came on, General Hernandez retired from the field from probably the common illness and fatigues, and, fatigue. and uh, General Jessup says something to the effect that, appreciate what you've done, your services, and so forth, and did no particular complaint about Hernandez. One of the dragoon veterans of that campaign, private Bartholomew Lynch mentioned by the way that uh, among all the various officers uh, regular army, Florida militia, Florida volunteers, or state volunteers or militia generally, that General Hernandez was the only field officer he ever saw wear any kind of uniform in campaigning against the Seminoles, so he, you know in other words, Hernandez wore his uniform, which would be of course the Parade dress of the time, which was usually only worn on parade. Many of the regular officers in Florida generally either wore civilian hunting dress or private soldiers' fatigues. General Jessup may have not have been any different. As a comment that he himself on campaign carried his own haversack or bread bag slung over his shoulder, which doesn't seem like it. He was wearing his full uniform. That wouldn't be easy. You can put this carrying a canteen and haversack with your epaulets on your shoulders and so forth. Regardless, many Florida militia officers were found to be very efficient in federal service as volunteers or as militia that was called forth. Captain Mason was notable. He was considered to be an efficient officer in U.S. service. He was killed accidentally in a skirmish by one of his own men. Colonel John Warren of Jacksonville, in the first years of the war, he was wounded with Likuchi, led the Florida company or so worth of men that were in the action on the flank of the regulars, keeping the Seminoles from cutting them off from the river. Warren subsequently commanded the Florida troops, the Florida militia that remained in East Florida attempting to defend what was left of the settlements. and its most significant combat action subsequently commanded the Florida volunteers and militia and a, and a company of gentlemen volunteers which means they were men that were not in actual militia service but had joined with the forces, literally as armed people, to aid the forces. Warren commanded this force at the Battle of San Flasco Hammock in September 1836, a pretty significant action in East Florida, which did not lead to a significant victory, but it was considered a victory in that Warrens then held the field and got back to Fort Gilliland without being defeated and scattered and massacred. In 1839, the commanding general of the Army, Alexander Macomb, came to Florida to work out another peace deal with the Seminole, if possible, during his tour of the Florida 4th and so forth and attempts to negotiate with Seminole leaders. He wanted another battalion of Florida volunteers at U.S. service to be mustered in, and he specifically requested Colonel Warren to raise that battalion for U.S. service. It was subsequently increased to a full regiment of 10 companies. Colonel Warren commanded that the laws in force in the United States were that Militia and Volunteer Corps could only serve three months of active duty at a time. The theory being that uh, when using militia forces, the militia unit would be discharged and that other militia units could be raised to take its place. The problem in East Florida was that with the outbreak of the war and the Seminole raids, the militia in Florida, sparsely settled as it was, was not very efficiently organized. Many of the companies had very few men. And secondly, when the war broke out, an enormous number of people lit out and headed back to Georgia or wherever they came from to get out of the war zone. This left the militia units in a very disorganized state. And consequently, Colonel Warren stepped into the void and he organized the remaining militia of the several East Florida counties into a volunteer corps which served in U.S. service on several enlistments, 3 months enlistments at a time, called the 1st Florida Regiment of Volunteers. And again, by 1839, he had been out of service for several months, and he raised another regiment for federal service. These Florida volunteers were considered some of the most efficient troops in Florida. Bartholomew Lynch, who I mentioned previously, a Dragoon veteran, commented that if the Florida-mounted militia were not the equals of the U.S. Army Dragoons, they were in no wise substandard or inferior to them in terms of their military capacities and skill. The great distinction, of course, is the Florida-mounted volunteers had no uniforms, but as U.S. volunteers, they were issued U.S. rifles for their various periods of enlistment whereas if they were serving as militia in their territorial capacity, where they were doing so, they would have employed their militia arms, which might have been a hodgepodge of shotguns, rifles, fouling pieces. By and large, for example, at the Battle of Wifacucci, Cole's brigade was so armed with a variety of common arms, but the United States subsequently did provide 500 muskets for Florida militia forces, and subsequently, again, Warren's commands Usually, were armed with U.S. rifles, gave them a pretty considerable advantage over musket armed troops generally.
0: What became of Colonel Warren?
2: Well, Colonel Warren, I haven't seen any specific reference to his date of death. So I don't know exactly when he passed away, but he disappears from the historical record, so far as I've discovered, about 1840, after that last Florida regiment was mustered out. He is shown as having subscribed with a political effort that included General Hernandez, by the way, of a number of prominent East Florida citizens, the majority of whom were members of the Whig Party, and their goal was to sever East Florida from West Florida, West Florida being west of the Suwannee, and notably the site of the capital of Tallahassee and the city, Port City of Pensacola, the other major town of mainland Florida besides St. Augustine in East Florida. The comments at the time were such that East Florida felt it would be in their best interest not to be politically permanently aligned as a state along with West Florida. This division seems to have been along party lines, mind you. So in other words, the Whigs felt that they had a dominance in East Florida and the Democrats had a dominance in West Florida and Suwannee was sort of the, the borderland. Evidently, this movement... Continued. There were efforts, notices to Congress that Florida's statehood should be predicated on a division. The subject, of course, is a lengthy one. I will simply note that when, in 1844, the debates relative to Florida's statehood, David Levy Yulee, who I believe at that time was the representative of the territory in Congress, he, he was in Congress without a vote. If he wasn't the representative at that time, he at least wrote this declaration on why Florida should achieve statehood in 1845, even though it was not very well developed and there were questions about its population. But one of the interesting points that Uli put in there was that while he was aware that there was still a significant party difference relative to Florida statehood as a unified state, in other words, there was still evidently a great deal of interest in having East Florida be a separate state, he said that if East and West Florida come together, And we agree on statehood now, it would probably go a long way in allowing Florida to immediately press claims against the federal government so that the various militia units that had not been paid for their federal service could have that taken care of by congressional action. In other words, if Florida becomes a state now, unified under the Tallahassee government, as a state of the union and as people of the United States, their their senators and representatives could then use their political authority to, to settle all the back pay issues because they were evidently significant. There was a large number of Florida militia units that did certain active service and there was confusion over the dates of muster and things of that nature. In fact, a brigade of Florida militia formed in 1840 for active duty. And because several of the companies, had been designated as foot companies for local defense only, there was a great deal of hand-wringing in Congress claiming that they shouldn't be paid as having been an active service if they were essentially home guards. That, of course, was a political football that in 1844, Muley, who was among the Democrats, said, Look, let's all come together. If Florida becomes a state now, we'll have enough political influence within the halls of Congress and the Senate in the House and the Senate to get legislation passed to clear this up and get everybody paid and get everybody their just due and so forth for the services rendered. And so that appears to have been largely the case. Florida was admitted into the union in eighteen forty five
1: Hernandez is best known as the commander of the federal units in East Florida at the time of the capture of Osceola in September 1837. So while General Jessup is usually given the historical slap for being the commander in Florida when Osceola was taken under a white flag, it was technically under General Hernandez's command that that particular action was taken. So Call, as a commander, he wasn't any different than the regulars. He fought decisive battle. He wanted to defeat the Seminoles in the way that Jackson had defeated the Creek. And it's not a surprise because Call had served in the Creek War under Jackson, and had even served on Jackson's staff and was, was sort of an adopted son on Jackson's military staff during the Creek War. Call owed a great deal of his influence in Florida to President Jackson as well.
0: What other means did the Army use, then?
1: They even, at certain points, attempted to turn the Tallahassee
0: Band against the Miccosukees to try and conclude hostilities even faster. Having failed with regular Army generals, they turned to militia Army generals. Having failed with militia Army generals, they turned back to Army generals. What were the actions, and who were the generals?
1: His campaign of 1837-38, there were three major actions at Okeechobee, Jupiter Inlet, and Loxahatchee. The latter two fought on the same ground within a couple weeks of each other. None of those engagements saw the U.S. forces capture any significant number of Seminoles. However, shortly after those battles, Jumper had surrendered with his people prior to the battles, and shortly after the Battle of Okeechobee, Alligator and his band surrendered they had been foremost in the Battle of Okeechobee, but they surrendered shortly afterwards. And after the Battle of Loxahatchee in January of 1838, General Jessup engaged in negotiation with Tuskegee and his Seminole band in March of 38. During that period, Jessup had his forces surround and capture that encampment, which was a significant capture of hundreds of warriors and women and children. And they were shipped west. The exertions by the American veterans of that campaign are probably unmatched in American military history in large measure until you see uh, Merrill's Marauders operating in Burma. It's not my opinion alone. John R. Elting, American military historian, made that comment in the mid-20th century. Uh, In his work on the American soldier, he felt troops in the Seminole War had probably seen the worst physical conditions of any U.S. veterans in action on active service. Again, the goal was to bring those battles to fruition. And when they did occur... The Seminoles perceived that it was to their advantage to engage in those battles, and it was in the sense that they killed and wounded a large number of American troops, but the troops also killed and wounded a certain number of Seminoles, even if it was a small number. It certainly demonstrated that the soldiers
0: were not afraid of battle as far as enforcing the
1: federal authority.
0: What was the Seminole Agency regarding when these battles happened, or if they happened, or if they continued? The battles only fought when the Seminoles wanted to fight, and the Seminoles were usually
1: smart enough to position themselves in in such a manner that the approaches to their position would be covered by a slough, a river, a swamp, something that would break up the cohesion of the attackers prevent them from operating in concert between units, allowing the Seminoles, when they did choose to withdraw from the fight, that they could do so without any particular fear of being overtaken.
2: Out of the
0: various combat arms of the army, which one did the Seminoles fear the most?
1: The Seminoles... A period had a general fear of the mounted militia more than anyone else. Now, in this period, southern hunters often preferred to hunt on horseback. They would ride through the woods. There's a British gentleman named Goss. He lived in Alabama in the 1830s teaching school, and he said that he went hunting quite a few times with the locals in Alabama backcountry. And he noticed how the the sports hunters of the South, it was a dangerous thing just to hunt with them because they would ride the horses as fast as they could through the open woods and handle their gun at the same time. Sometimes to their discomfort share, they may have to dodge tree branches and everything while they're chasing down a deer in the open woods. Well, the mounted volunteers that were brought into military service, they'd all done this so they could track Indians through the woods if they were open enough. The strategy of the Seminoles was to stay out of the Pine Barrens, where they knew they could be overtaken by the mounted elements of the American forces at a disadvantage. And that's why they generally hid in the swamps, because they knew that they could at least negate the mobility of the mounted volunteer
0: units. How did this impact individual units or militia?
1: Like the Missouri volunteers that Okeechobee. Many of those men had served honorably and with some degree of uh, skill in the Black Hawk War and the War of 1812 prior, but because the Seminoles had positioned themselves across a the sawgrass prairie, the Missouri Volunteers were unable to utilize their greatest advantage, which was their horse-borne mobility. They essentially just became riflemen stumbling
0: through a sawgrass swamp at quarter mile an hour. The name Camp Izzard after Lieutenant Izzard, who was a dragoon. A dragoon doesn't sound like a very American term. It has to do something with being uh, an armed horseman. What does it mean, and how many of them were there in the U.S. Army? Uh, Izzard was the only dragoon at
1: Camp Izzard in 1836. He was on the staff of General Gaines from the Western Department, so he proceeded to Florida. He was a member of the Dragoon Regiment. So the dragoons in the 1830s, they would make these grand rides out in the prairies and visit with the tribes. There wasn't an idea that the Western tribes were all that interested in war with the United States. When the Florida War really came into effect, the federal government organized a second regiment of dragoons specifically to serve in Florida. And like the Mounted Volunteers, they were not cavalry in the sense that they fought on foot. Mounted Volunteers, often called Mounted Gunmen, Those units would fight on foot, too, principally. But there were occasions where they would come on Indians while they were mounted and and had little skirmishes. But generally, like dragoons, they would dismount, too. They would ride into action and dismount. The Dragoons were trained to do the same thing, but being regular troops, they had the advantage of a superior state of discipline, and that became most evident in the battle at Loxahatchee. You had the U.S. Second Dragoons in that action, and you had a battalion of Tennessee mounted volunteers under Major Lauderdale, one of the foremost commanders of mounted volunteers under General Jackson in the previous campaigns. Indian War's... In the Battle of Oxahachie, both units had to dismount on going into action because, again, the Seminoles were positioned in a swamp along a river bank where they negated the ability of the troops to maneuver against their flanks with mounted men. So both of these mounted units had to dismount to attack. The dragoons charged right through the river, practically, being troops under a very strict discipline. The Tennesseans, when they were called on to make a frontal attack, their attack stalled. The Tennesseans opened fire to trade fire with the Seminoles. Meanwhile, the dragoons, of course, were closing with them to come to grips against them. And knowing that the Seminoles... Seminoles wouldn't do that. The Seminoles ran away. But General Jessup was evidently very disappointed in the Tennesseans that they wanted to fight the Indians in their own fashion rather than fight the Indians in the, again, the European fashion of close action with them. And there's supposedly Jessup even drew a pistol on the one of the Tennessee commanders threatened him to get his men moving into the attack. Jessup supposedly led that attack and was shot in the cheek when he turned around. And the Tennesseans weren't behind him anymore. Uh, now, notably, the Tennesseans in that fight suffered more casualties than any other unit. That may be because they were facing the bulk of the Indian riflemen in the chance where their position was. But there was at least one officer in the pages of the Army Navy Chronicle wrote a letter stating that the casualties are meaningless, that when the Tennesseans' attacks stalled, they were consequently exposed to the enemy's fire longer than the regular units. They closed distance so rapidly that the enemy fled. We see the same thing in the Civil War. General Jackson at 1st Manassas telling his Virginia brigade to wait till the enemy close and fire into them and charge and use the bayonet, meaning that they'll run away after they've been disordered by your fire. But what we see generally in the Civil War is the volunteer units of both sides would come into rough rifle or musketry range and blaze away at each other almost like a duel. If you didn't place the military doctrine on the militia, that's exactly what they would have done with the Indians, like at the Battle of Point Pleasant. They just hunker down and bang away at each other until one side or the other has had enough. European tactics were to take and hold ground. In other words, they're on that ground and we're going to occupy it. We're going to drive them off of it and we're going to occupy it. So again, the militia would be criticized for not fulfilling that particular role in these wilderness battles, but it's more of a leadership issue. And since even the volunteer units in federal service of the militia, they elected their own officers, and if the officers were not efficient, then the units would not be efficient. Even the regulars admit that. Frequent comments from the time period mentioned that Colonel Persephone F. Smith's regiment of Louisiana volunteers under General Gaines was second to none in their camp discipline, march discipline, and in fact proved extraordinarily bold in in action at Camp Izzard and in the subsequent Battle of Halaf or Scott's Battle, in March of 1836, were equal with the 4th Infantry in rushing toward the foe. But then other units, like Colonel Chisholm's Alabama Regiment, when they were attacked at the Nornisassa Creek a couple of months later, the 4th Infantry was in that fight. And according to an officer at Fort Brook, the 4th Infantry officers complained that the Alabamians were not as willing as the Louisianians had been to close with the enemy, even though the Alabamians had performed their service satisfactorily, according to the official reports of the action. They closed within gunshot distance, by their own account, good gunshot distance and blown away at the Seminoles, but what is lacking is a reference that they made a specific and active effort to close with the enemy, to drive them from the ground they occupied, you see. That's what the 4th Infantry did during that battle, which subsequently concluded it.
0: The Constitution gives Congress the authority to organize and train the militia, and they can choose whether that training is more oriented towards militia or for regular use. However, that's not what the Congress chose.
1: It was intended because the federal government, by saying that the militia of the U.S., after 1820, had to use the same tactics as the Army, the militia were held to that same standard, even though they lacked organization or even the capability to achieve that level of discipline, you see. When the criticism about Taylor's handling Okeechobee came out, The Secretary of War attempted to defend Taylor in the public print saying he had to put the Missourians in front as skirmishers because they were light troops at best. It would have been silly to try to use them as a regular force in battle line. This is why Taylor gave them the credit that he did when he said they fought better than militia generally because even though he intended them to fight as a light corps and skirmish order, Colonel Gentry, their commander, had them make a frontal attacked, and they even pressed into the swamp about 80 to 100 yards and held their position for the better part of an hour until their lack of command. After gentry fell, the lieutenant colonel of the regiment evidently disappeared or was a non-entity, and so the regiment's cohesion reached a point where company commanders withdrew their men from the action. That's when Taylor says the regiment broke. That's what he meant. But what the Missourians in their own definition state. Their big complaint is the way that Taylor's report just says they mostly broke and doesn't give any detail about it. And so many of the Missourians wrote depositions explaining that, yes, the regiment became disorganized. And yes, they did go back to the camp, cross the swamp back to the camp while firing was yet going on in the distance with the infantry. But one of the things they wanted to point out in their own deposition is they did not withdraw under fire. Only when the Seminoles opposite their front disappeared did they withdraw. Because Taylor's report is so spare in language, and he just says, well, the Missourians mostly broke. It gives the impression in one's mind that they broke under fire. And the Missourians wanted to point out, no, the firing had abated at that point, and the men were scattered in the swamp. They had many casualties, they couldn't find any commander so they just withdrew at that point. One of the Missourians wanted to make the point clear. The point being, they didn't break with a panic, they broke slowly. He says, then I can prove that we withdrew without panic. We carried off all of our dead and wounded. He says, when the 6th Infantry withdrew, they did not. In fact, many of their dead were scalped after they fell back, whereas the Missourians, you know, quote unquote broke. This gentleman says, well, we carried all our dead and wounded back.
0: We weren't moving in a panic. We didn't leave anyone behind. What was a surefire way, if the army had wanted it, to get the Seminoles to disperse? At Okeechobee, and
1: at Loxahatchee, and at Whitlacoochee, etc., where the regular troops attempting to close that deadly ground with the Seminoles, that's where the Seminoles usually would withdraw. But they wouldn't do it before they inflicted casualties. That's where those body counts start to pile up. And the regulars were willing to trade those casualties for these Pyrrhic
0: victories. The Seminoles' fierce resistance that exacted high casualties had its effects, especially at Okeechobee, where Taylor wanted a decisive victory, but the high casualties prevented him from doing that and from continuing the fight later.
1: Again, at Okeechobee, Taylor won a victory by most measures, but his brigade was virtually incapable of sustained movement afterwards they spent the rest of the campaign trying to get over 100 wounded men back to tampa bay it was a very difficult thing although he did bring
0: most of the units back into field service within a few weeks in the years following the army still sought a decisive battle but the seminoles refused so it tried alternatives bribery deceit lying we'll discuss those in our next episode to bolster its efforts to stay in the field full time to keep the pressure on the Seminole. The Army got an unexpected ethical assist from the Army Medical Department. It took the efforts
1: of the Army Medical Department in 1839, they produced a publication which compared the mortality data of the U.S. Army over the previous previous 10 or 20 years to demonstrate that active military duty in Florida had been no more deadly proportionally than elsewhere. Based in measure on that data, Colonel Worth subsequently ordered military operations to continue year-round in Florida, and it was that summer of 1841 that really broke the resistance of the Tallahassees and the remaining Miccosukees in Central Florida anyway by destroying their crops while they were still growing during the Army's summer campaign.
0: What was special about Colonel William Worth finding a solution where the other generals had failed? Worth had participated in
1: some of the tactical boards that looked into changing the tactics of the Army in previous years, but all of the tactical manuals were penned by General Scott. What Worth did is, by putting his men constantly in the field against the Seminoles, they had no time to really work on the minutiae of the heavy infantry drill portion of the drill books, and so they really became true light infantry. The United States Army did not at the time have specific light infantry units. The expectation was that each unit of foot troops would perfect all portions of the drill manual that would for demonstration to an inspector that would be heavy infantry drill and the light infantry drill and general scott's view was that they were inseparable that you had to train troops in the heavy infantry drill much like you would today what you put them in boot camp and the close order drill is the first primary formation They learned the skirmish drills or the extended order combat drills later. And that's exactly how the Army looked at it in the 1830s. But because it was necessary for the troops to act only in light infantry order in the wilderness, General Worth, by putting his regulars in the field constantly, without a break over the summer, they had no occasion to do the heavy infantry drill. And consequently, they really did perfect the light infantry drill.
0: Did these actions finally prompt the possibility of a decisive battle for the army?
1: Once the Seminoles' crops were destroyed and they reached a point of desperation, Worth did get a battle Final battle of the war at Palaklakaha Hammock on April of 1842, brigade-sized force of regulars under Worth, along with some friendly Seminoles and Black Seminole scouts, engaged and attacked the fortified hideout of Halak Tustanoogie and his Mikasuki warriors near Palaklakaha and drove them from their position with the loss of one dragoon killed and several others wounded. Sprague, the author of the Florida War History
0: of 1848, was present in that battle and gives an excellent description of it. But getting back to decisive battles, it took a number of small but decisive efforts spread out over a large area to get the Seminole to decisively turn themselves in for removal
1: summer of 1841, Colonel William Worth ordered the troops to continue in the field year-round, and it was during that summer that they destroyed an enormous quantity of the crops hidden in the fields of the Seminoles, not just in the Everglades, but in operations around the Withlacoochee River. The secret fields planted by Tiger Tail and the other Tallahassee peoples were found out and destroyed in the cove of the Withlacoochee, and also near Omasasa and other points north. And without those crops, the Seminoles were facing near starvation. And that's when you had a a large number of them surrendering near the close of 1841. By the spring of 1842, there were very few Seminoles that hadn't been captured or surrendered, perhaps
0: 300 all told. For those stout-hearted who still refused to remove, they put up one last fight in what became a decisive battle for Colonel Worth, but also a fairly meaningless one. Since there were so few Seminole left, a decisive battle would no longer be so decisive. It might just be a culmination. Because they spent so much time in the field, these small but decisive tactical actions by the Army turned the soldiers into swamp warriors, enabling them to face the Seminole any remote geographic location in Florida.
1: That's right. These guys had been swamp campaigning for the better part of a year. In garrison, they would have maybe had morning parade, but generally they were in the field prosecuting the war to its utmost. The war was concluded shortly after April of 1842 because it was obvious to the United States government and the Army that after we pressing the war to its utmost, the results that accrued from that could not be bettered. You couldn't push U.S. soldiers any harder than they had been during that last several months of the war.
0: And that attritional warfare, that unrelenting attritional warfare, all but ensured there'd be no decisive battle, because there would be no great numbers of Seminoles to offer one. But there was a battle, a final battle, for the Second Seminal War. From Sprague's description, the real game-changer
1: was they had all become extraordinarily expert woodsmen over the campaigns just previous months of hunting down Halleck's party, and secondly, the skirmish drill where the men would scatter but they would keep within distance. Each pair of men would form a file who would stay within sight of each other and they would alternate their fire so that one or the other would always be loaded in case of surprise. But the skirmish line would advance simultaneously, and as Sprague says, that battle generally was engaged in as hundreds of individual skirmishes, and the Seminole, under Halleck, had built some kind of log breastwork out of felled uh, trees. Not that they felled them. There were probably plenty of fallen trees in a swamp. The troops managed to outflank them in an excellent demonstration of light infantry tactics
0: like some of the early battles of the Second Seminole War, the results were lopsided. But unlike the early battles of the Seminole War, where that unbalance in results benefited the Seminole, the army actually won the lopsided contest in that final force-on-force battle. One takeaway from all this? Seeking decisive battles is elusive. And some of the decisive battles that you get are not so decisive either. We see post-Seminole Wars and post American Civil War, we still can't get the desire for a decisive battle out of our head. Tell us about post-Civil War examples, seeking out the decisive battle and expecting one. So
1: a a greater emphasis on regulars after the war. So in the war with Spain, we fought, what, two battles essentially, and the public was largely enervated by the fighting at San Juan Heights. And we still haven't forgotten it. For the scale of the San Juan battle, you notice the American public is still fascinated with it. So don't underestimate the power of a battle. Then we come to the modern era, and John Keegan in the 70s said in his book, Face of Battle, that he believed that battle was over. And I always puzzled about what he meant by that. And he's talking about it in a general way, historically. But until I began reading early 19th century American sources, I didn't quite connect it with the American system And what I see is since World War II, with the United Nations and this purposeful stagnation in geopolitics, we're not creating nations, we're not destroying nations, you know, that kind of thing. The point of fighting a major battle no longer exists because we're not in the same playing field as it were. When we took Iraq in 2003, was it? It was not our intention to make it a territory of the United States, and we didn't do so. But you see, in the 1850s, if we had sent an expedition to Iraq and they took it, we essentially conquered Mexico in 1847, but we didn't really conquer it. We never suppressed the Mexican guerrillas. We essentially made a deal with the government, but the Mexican people were... We didn't have enough troops in Mexico to occupy it. Our army in Mexico was very small. It just occupied essentially Mexico City. Mexico a big country, so we didn't really conquer Mexico. We made a deal with its government to conclude the war and sell us the northern portion of its state.
0: Jesse Marshall, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us for The Seminole War's Authority.
1: I've enjoyed our discussion immensely.
0: This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.